back at our study of the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, we, uh, John saw a vision of one like the Son of Man with the attributes of God standing in the midst of the churches. And Jesus, is, uh, Jesus communicates with those churches. That's the reason he stands in the midst of them. 30 to 60 years earlier, depending on how you date the revelation, but decades earlier, Jesus had said to his disciples as he spoke to the Father in the prayer the last night before his death. And he says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also who shall believe on me through their word. So Jesus, uh, just before his death, prayed to the Father for his disciples who would be in the world. And... Uh, he sends, the, this, this one who stands with the attributes of God in the midst of the church, sends a message to the seven churches of Asia. And uh, these are the letters that we studied in chapters 2 and chapter 3. Uh, he, his message to them is that even though they lived in very difficult cultures, cultures of idolatrous worship, cultures of pagan practices, cultures of emperor worship, that in spite of that, and in spite of the fact that they were persecuted, uh, they were encouraged to remain faithful and to overcome. And, and that's the message that uh, we wanted to extract from the letters to the seven churches of Asia, that we too should remain faithful and uh, until the end, and that we should be encouraged to overcome. As we go on from the seven letters to seven churches, uh, we, we're going to start and today look at Revelation chapters 4 and 5. In the first verse of chapter 4, we are told, after these things, after the vision that he had seen in the first chapter, after the letters that he uh, was revealed to him that should be sent, put in a book, that he should write in a book and send to the seven churches, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like to the sound of the trumpet, that's the voice he had heard in the original vision, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. And so John is introduced to an open door, a door standing open into heaven, and he is invited to come up there and that he would be shown the things that would take place after these things, after the letters 
to the seven churches. And that's the rest of the revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The rest of the revelation is what's going to take place. And we have uh, in, in chapters 4 and 5 a vision which God wants the people to see before these things are revealed. Now, the things that are going to be revealed culminate in the second advent, the second return of Christ, the return of Christ, and the eternal judgment. And there are other things described as we're going to deal with in the future weeks, but there are other things that are described, but they culminate in the second advent, the return of Jesus, and in the eternal judgment. And so John is, uh, uh, is invited through this open door to see what these things are. Now, Jesus had said to his disciples the night before his death and uh, his prayer to the Father that he has sent them into the world. And the catchphrase for in the world that we're going to use in the rest of the revelation is the wilderness, uh, the church in the wilderness. Perhaps a reference to the of Israel before they crossed Jordan into the land of rest. For 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. And the revelation uses this concept of the wilderness to identify the place where we, the church, exist until all of those things which are revealed uh, are come to pass, including the second advent and the eternal judgment. So, the church is in the wilderness. Jesus said, I send you into the world. I send you into the world for the purpose of teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, the church is in the wilderness, and already, in just a few decades, after Jesus sending out the commission, church to the wilderness, uh, there's all kinds of persecutions and difficulties. And small churches, apparently poor from the world, the way the world sees them, standing in the midst of wealth and power and an adverse culture that's contrary to the teachings of God. And so, as John is going to see what God wants to reveal about those things that are going to take place until the end of time in this universe. And, it, and as those things are revealed, there will be difficult things already happening in the church. And so, as he begins to reveal these things, his purpose is to put in the minds of his followers a true picture of the way things really are. And so, the, for the rest of the Revelation... We're going to be looking at the Christians, at, at us, from the perspective of here we are out in the wilderness. And before we get overcome and burdened and have difficulty with all the things that happen in life, those things that are going to be revealed, before we get overcome with those, he wants to make sure that we've got a clear vision of things that really are. So let's read uh, the rest of chapter 4. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven. 
and, and one sitting on the throne, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardis in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Out of the throne came flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures, front and behind. The first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever, the four the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and, I will, and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. So we, uh, John is taken through this open door, and he sees heaven. He is, there's revealed to him this wondrous scene that we have just read, and our task, of course, as readers, is to try to picture these things. We've had a little technology difficulty, and we had two or three drawings of students around the world who have tried to draw this picture, and so we don't have those to... Uh, use this morning, so use your imagination. Now, what do, we, what do we expect to see in heaven? Jesus had made it clear in John chapter 4, verse 24, that God is spirit, and those that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we know that God is spirit. John is in the spirit in order to be able to see these things. But he sees things which he has to understand. And he draws them, he writes them down for us, and we try to understand them in, in, in our way of understanding physical things. And we know that in heaven, our Father is there. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so we expect in heaven a spiritual being but a being, a person, our Father. And that's the message we want to get from chapter 4 as we look at these things. Uh, we, don't want to, um, we don't want to fail to see the overall message as when we get into the details of some of these things that are depicted here. But let's talk about them a little bit. Uh, th this scene will remind you of other scenes of, uh, of God that are uh, revealed to us in the Old Testament Scriptures. Isaiah chapter 6 is a vision of God and 
These four creatures of, uh, of Revelation 4 are generally identified in Isaiah chapter 6. They make up this gyroscopic uh, vehicle by which God can go wherever He wants to go as quick as He wants to go, always going forward. Uh, and so the, we, we have some preliminary scenes of this. In Ezekiel chapter 1, we, Ezekiel has a vision of uh, God and the Son of Man coming to being brought to the Father, as we have talked about before. And so we have... Uh, we, we have some background in these Old Testament visions by which we can begin to understand what is being depicted. There's no doubt that this is a picture, a, a depiction of God the Creator, the one who is eternal. He is personal. He is our Father. He reigns from the control center of the universe. He reigns in glory and majesty. He reigns with symbols of power. And He is worthy of our worship. And we will gather in a little while and remember His Son and worship our Father. And He is worthy of that worship because of His identity that we all acknowledge. And it is depicted to us with these symbols. Now there are there are a number of symbols here that we recognize. The flashes of lightning are what happens on Mount Sinai when God comes down on the mount to deliver the law to Moses. He is surrounded by a rainbow, a symbol of the covenant with Noah that God would not again destroy the earth with a flood. He is surrounded in glory and majesty, and I'll not try to interpret all of these colors. We don't want, again, to miss the message by getting into the details too much. But he is surrounded with majesty. He is surrounded with glory. Uh, he is in the appearance of power. He is a person. He sits on the throne that controls the universe. Now, around him, we have others. We have these four creatures, odd-looking creatures, one with the face of a man, one with the face of a lion, one with the face of a beast, one with the face of an eagle. Uh, God is surrounded by His creation, and these creatures are there as they were in Isaiah chapter 6. They have six wings. We aren't given the function, but in Isaiah 6, the function was with two, they covered their face to show reverence. With two, they covered their feet to show humility, and with two, they operated. But here they are, have the six wings. They are full of eyes, front and back. And these eyes surely represent to us the omniscience of God. God our Father sees. The seven spirits of God are before Him, the spirits that are sent into the world. God sees. God knows. God knows about the persecutions that take place in, uh, in Smyrna. He knows about the fact that his disciples and Pergamos must live in the place which is the home of Satan, the great altar and great temples to these gods. He knows that they are persecuted. 
He knows because all of these creatures who represent his creation and his, his being have eyes and they know and they understand. He's also surrounded by 24 elders who are crowned and these are again the crowns of victory. These are not diadems. These are stephanos. These are victory crowns. Crowns made of gold. And they sat around the Father. Uh, who are these 24 elders? Well, there have been many, many books written about who these uh, elders are, who, who they symbolize. It seems to me that uh, there's a clear reference of tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, uh, the church of the Old Testament, the church of the New Testament, the combined people of God, the victorious combined people of God sit before him in heaven and worship him with crowns of victory. And, you know, you can, a lot of people take different perspectives about that. You can cast all kinds of doubt on that. Here, John's not dead yet. He's not up there, and he's one of the 12 apostles. <laughs> uh, you get to describing the 12 tribes of Israel, and you realize that Joseph had two tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh. So where are they? We're going to see uh, that problem next week, maybe, or, or the week after that, uh, as the 12 tribes of Israel are identified in, in the interlude that takes place between the opening of the 6th and the 7th seals. But, but in spite of all those details, again, we don't want to get lost in the details. God is surrounded by His victorious people who have survived that which is taking place in the wilderness and have remained faithful unto death. And they have been given the white robes that are associated and are promised many times in the letters to the seven churches that are associated with the white clothing of Jesus Himself. And they sit and they worship the Father. They declare, all of these creatures, continuously declare the holiness of God and His worthiness of our worship. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you, were for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. And today, uh, as creatures of God, with the creatures who are depicted in this vision of the throne scene of God, we need to be worshipable of God. fifth chapter starts uh, with this verse. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written, in, within, written inside and on the back sealed up with seven seals. So now again we, we want to get this picture in our mind. Uh, I hope that you can visualize a scene of glory with God our Father sitting on the throne, surrounded by those who properly worship Him. And in the right hand of God is a book. Now, we've, again, you've got, to, you've got to draw this in your mind, and, and if, in our days, we'll 
draw it with a book, something like this. Uh, in a few more years, people will probably see an electronic device of some kind. Uh, more likely in John's day, uh, it was a scroll. It's a scroll, a rolled up scroll uh, written inside and on the back. It's got a lot of information in it. It's filled up and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, there are a lot of important books in the world. Uh, books that store and then communicate information, just like the book that John was told to write down and send to the seven churches of Asia. Just think about the great books of our time and our culture and our history. Think about the Rosetta Stone. We don't think of it as a book, but it, it's a, a stone with interpretations of, of languages that are known with the old Greek language. And by the Rosetta Stone, men were able to decipher the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt. This is an important book. Um, we think about, in our system, in our, in our system of law, the Magna Carta and the declaration that there are rights and that the kings and the lords of this world do not have all authority, that their authority has some limits to it. And the Magna Carta grows and grows over centuries into our constitutional system and into our system of laws. Uh, surely law is important in the affairs of men. We think about medical books that describe procedures that literally saves lives and teach physicians and nurses and medical people to do uh, amazing things with the human body made so miraculously with, by God. Now we think about the uh, recording of God by the Old Testament writers. What a magnificent book that tells us about the beginning and tells us about man's fall, and God's plan to redeem him. Uh, a great book of history written over centuries by scores of writers, but reveals the mind of God. We think about the letters that John sent to the seven churches of Asia. We think about the New Testament and what it means to us. Is it not a great book? But here... Here in, in our vision that we're dealing with today, here we have a book that is in the right hand of God. What book can be greater? The book written by the one who has always been. And not only that, in, in chapter 4 verse 1, uh, John is promised that he would be shown the things that are to come. Are those things written in this book that's in the right hand of God? So, there we, we open chapter 5 with this vision of God sitting on His throne in all of His glory with all these creatures, including the redeemed from the earth who have been successful, bowing down in worship, and in His right hand is a book. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth 
or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And so John's emotions swing from this high of in the spirits, seeing God sitting on his throne, seeing in his right hand a book, a book that John has been insinuated to that this may hold the, tell the things that are going to happen in the future. And he's got all of this excitement with the possibility of this book, this book being opened in his presence. And no one is found worthy to open the book. And so John cries bitterly at this great opportunity that's been given to him. And yet no one is worthy to open the book and to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And so an announcement is given to him from one of these elders that the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to open the book. And, and here is John standing in this open door, this open door into heaven with all this glorious scene before him. And after being excited by the fact that there's a book that will reveal the future and then being disappointed to the point of crying because no one is worthy to open the book. Now his hopes are revived and he stands in the door watching the lion of the tribe of Judah will be able to open the book. And so he stands in the door looking to his right, looking to his left, you know, it's like, uh, it's like a play set before us on a stage, set before John on a stage. Is the line's cue to be enter right or enter left? We don't know which one he's going to come from, but we know that there's a lion coming and he's going to be able to open the book. You know, the lions are strong. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the root of Jesse, the king of Israel. He will be able to open, take the book from the hand of God, to open it and explain to John the things that are written in it. And so John stands looking right and left, waiting for the lion of the tribe of Judah to enter the scene that's set before him uh, with the throne of God. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So the lion of the tribe of Judah does not show up, but rather a little lamb, a lamb slain, a lamb with his throat cut and his blood poured out. And the elder says, 
it is this slain lamb who is able to take the book and reveal the contents of the book. Now, we understand these images. Uh, the lamb is the lion. The lion is the lamb. They are both Jesus. Uh, in a couple of the photographs, uh, that the picture drawings that were made, the students did the interpretation of the symbols. The symbol is the lamb with his throat cut before the throne of God, having the power, being worthy to open the book that's in God's right hand. And they interpret it and, and, and draw in their interpretation of Jesus in their drawing. Because we understand Jesus is the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world as a part of God's plan to redeem man from the fall which took place in the beginning. And He truly is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He comes through the lineage of David. He comes through the tribe of Judah. It is a part of the glorious plan of God through ages to bring about the redemption of mankind. But the power to open the book, uh, the, the power by which we live in the wilderness, the power by which we will be able to endure the persecutions of the culture around about us, is not so much from the line of the tribe of Judah, although he instructs us. God's dealing with David instructs us. But our power to survive and to endure comes from the Lamb, from the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose sin washes away our sin and redeems us to the Father so that we in the wilderness have our names written in the Lamb's book of life. And no matter what happens, we will endure and survive. There are many pictures of the lion and the lamb. Uh, this one was given to me decades ago by Buster Herod. Many of you all uh, remember Buster, an excellent teacher, uh, excellent Christian man. And this was, uh, from a period that I'm not sure of, this was a palmolive soap commercial. And the purpose of the commercial was, uh, you know, palmolive soap will <laughs> clean you up and turn you from a, from a beast into a lamb. Uh, and it seems to me it's a fitting figure for us to depict as we understand that it is both the power of the line of the tribe of Judah and the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ which is able to open the book of life. Now, I don't know how we'll deal with the, with the book as we get into it. Uh, uh, we're going to next week, we'll get started with opening the seven seals on the scroll. But at the very least, this book that's in the right hand of God symbolizes the will and the knowledge of God 
regarding our individual eternal destiny. It is at least included in it, book of life, where our names are written at the time we are baptized and uh, from which Satan has no power to take us, but we unfortunately can fail to endure and not remain faithful unto death. And so, it, and when he had taken the book, let's keep reading in chapter 5, and when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around about the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so the creatures of heaven who have been praising God also praise the Lamb. For he is worthy because of his sacrifice. He is worthy because of his faithfulness to the plan of the Father to not only open the book and reveal the secrets to man, but also to be worshipped. And so, seen in heaven turns to the worship of the Lamb. And every living and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And so the scene that is revealed to John through the open door into heaven is completed with, the, with God sitting on His glorious throne in the controlled center of the universe with the worthiness of the sacrificed lamb to open the book that's in the right hand of God. Now why do we, why do we begin with such a vision. Uh, we've got these introductory three chapters to the book, the scene of Jesus standing in the midst of the church with the attributes of God. We have the instructions, the letters, the admonitions to the seven churches of Asia. We are told that John will be, there will be revealed unto John things that are to come, even to the second advent and the eternal judgment. So why, do we, why don't we get on with it? And the answer is, really need to have a good picture of reality before we get on with it. 
in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a story from uh, uh, recorded of Elisha. Elisha and his servant are running from Ahab and Jezebel, and, and they go to the city of Dothan. And the army of the Syrians, uh, who are upset because Elisha keeps revealing their military plans, the, the, the army of Syria comes down and surrounds the city of Dothan. And here Elisha and his servant are inside the city. The gates are closed. Uh, the army is surrounding them. They have no possibility of escape. And so the servant wakes up and sees the surrounding army, and he runs to Elisha and says, Woe are we, we are undone. And Elisha says to the father, he says, Open, him, open his eyes and let him see. You see, there was a reality that existed that was beyond the physical. A reality that existed that was beyond and had more than the surrounded, surrounding army of the, Assyr- the Assyrians. There was, when his eyes were opened, the hills were filled with warriors and chariots of fire. And their power was such that when they came down, Elisha could take the Syrian army by the nose and march them back to Syria, back to Damascus. Uh, you see, the situation looked bad. The situation in Pergamos looks bad. Sometimes the situation here looks bad, in spite of the influence of the church in Christ for 2,000 years. Sometimes it looks bad. And from the wilderness, we have to be able to look at the world around about us and see the true reality. And the true reality, the actuality, is that God sits on His throne in glory and power and majesty. Knowing all things, He counts the feathers of the birds that fly in the sky. And He sits on His throne in the presence of people who have been successful and in the presence of the slain Lamb who is worthy to open the book because it gives us relief from our sin. And we have to attack tomorrow. We have to survive the rest of our life in this wilderness. And we want to do it with the true image of the power of God who is watching over us. And I believe that's the message that is delivered here in this throne scene in Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4 and 5. The glory of God and the worthiness of the sacrifice of Jesus to solve our problems. And as we live life, we want to approach it with that true scene in our mind. And next week, we'll go on. Uh, Thus far, the symbols have been quite easy. Uh, We recognize God. We recognize His. Uh, Symbols have been easy. They'll get more difficult, uh, but we want to stay close to the message that's being delivered. And we start with the message.
that God loves us. He sits on His throne with power, and He is there for us. We should worship Him. Thank you very much.